Father, we just praise you and bless you again for today, Lord, for your great goodness towards us. How can we begin to fathom the depth of your faithfulness and the love that you have for us in the way that you open and show and share and let us understand the word that you have for us. We're so mindful, Lord, of this great privilege that you give to us for the joy that's set before us, for the word, Lord, that's able to save our souls. And we would pray even this morning as we would search your scriptures that you would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would transform us through the renewing of our mind. We praise you and bless you for that wisdom to be brought forth from above and given to us even here this morning. We thank you for it and praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to begin today in Hebrews chapter 1, verse number 13, and that will be the place that we'll start from. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Well, we've seen in our past weeks of study that a specific process had been set in place from the foundation that is for the purpose of rulership in the seventh day. And we can identify the process this way. Creation, fruitfulness, multiplication, filling the earth, subduing the earth, and then dominion. And this was set in the mandate given to Adam and the woman in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And we have seen that through the last Adam, a creation in Christ has taken place. And that from this new creation, those who will be taken from Christ's body to be his bride, along with the last Adam, will be fruitful and will multiply. Through Christ's work among the saved, he will, in a figurative sense, over the course of this dispensation, fill the earth with the many sons who will be brought to glory in anticipation of the earth being subdued with rulership to follow. And we had seen, just as Israel was to enter the land of Canaan and subdue it in order to rule at the head of the nations in a theocracy, so those who will form Christ's bride will engage in a spiritual warfare to subdue the heavenly realm occupied by Satan and his angels in anticipation of ruling the earth with Christ from the heavens in the seventh day. And as we see from the verses that we began with today, the Lord is at the Father's right hand until he makes Christ's enemies his footstool, until he has subdued them. And God's subjection of Christ's enemies and our own engagement with them in the spiritual warfare are not at odds with one another. In fact, they really are complementary. We might remember Ephesians 6.10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And two things will become immediately apparent here. Our strength to engage the occupants of our homeland 
is only found in the Lord and is confined, therefore, to the realm of the Spirit. And the armor provided that we might have this victory is God's armor. In fact, it is to put on God himself. Romans 13, 12 talks about this. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. My goodness, isn't that the truth? Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. And the next verse gives commentary on the verse that we have just read. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry, drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. Those are the works of darkness. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. From these verses then, we can see that to put on the armour of light, which itself is synonymous with the whole armour of God, is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we see this. For though we walk in the flesh, and this is talking about our physical body, not our sin nature, we do not war against according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exhorts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And what was the obedience of Christ? Very simple. Not my will, but your will be done. Every thought brought into captivity to that obedience. Not my will, Lord, but yours be done. And again here, we can see that the weapons of our warfare are mighty in God. It is God who engages and defeats our enemies, just as he was to do with the Jews in the land of promise. Exodus 23, 23. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. Our part in the spiritual warfare then is to be faithfully obedient to the commands of Scripture. And as we do so, God will subdue ours and Christ's enemies, giving us the victory in the spiritual warfare. And this is the same truth that we see expressed in 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again, literally brought us forth from above, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And this should be an easy concept for us to understand. The children of Israel were to go into the land of promise 
in the natural, in the physical. They had to engage their enemy. They had to fight with him. They had to engage him in battle. But it was God who would overcome the enemies. And if we take that into the spiritual realm, it's exactly the same. We have to engage our enemy in the realm of the spirit through our faithful obedience. And as we do so, God will give us the victory. And we will be kept by his power through faith, ready for that salvation to be revealed in the last time. And the word that's translated kept here has to do with being protected as by a military garrison. And this garrison is seen to be the power of God. And God's power deployed on our behalf is in response to our faith. Our faith to the saving of the soul. Our belief in what the scriptures teach about the seventh day. Our belief concerning our homeland and our hope and our victory. We don't then directly engage with our enemy in any tangible sense. But through our faith, God engages him on our behalf, giving us the victory. And this subduing of the enemies and thereby the subduing of their land will be completed by God within the 2,000 years of this dispensation. And as this dispensation ends, so that contingent of like-minded individuals who have separated themselves to Christ, who have been sought out by the Holy Spirit in his search for the bride, will be complete. In response to their faith, the heavenly land and its inhabitants will have been subdued and they will have become Christ's footstool. And Christ will return to take out of his body on the earth those who have proven themselves worthy like Caleb and Joshua. The earth and the Gentile nations will then be subdued during the tribulation and the events that follow ushering in the glorious seventh day when a new order of rulers, God's three firstborn sons, will rule over the redeemed creation for a thousand years. What will you do? Let me encourage us all this morning. Make sure we're there. Be part of that contingent of when the Lord returns that we may be that adopted firstborn son. We'll go back to Ephesians chapter 6 for a moment and we'll look in verse 11. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places." As we know, our warfare is not against flesh and blood. It is not against the administration of Gentile world power on the earth in the present. Simply leave it alone. Stop wasting time and energy fretting over that which we can do absolutely nothing about. There was an English king once, a man named Canute. And his nobles had persuaded him that he was so powerful 
that if you sat at the edge of the sea and commanded the waves to go back, they would go back. He had wet feet. And so it is with the present system of government over the earth. We cannot, nor should we even be attempting to try and change it. It is the Lord's business, and he will do it in his time. It's exactly as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. No one engaged in warfare, the spiritual warfare, entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Our warfare is against principalities. It's against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And that which those in the heavenly places have arrayed against us are described as the wiles of the devil, the fiery darts of the wicked one, And these are really two ways of saying the same thing. And that which comprise the fiery darts, the devil's wiles, have been set in place from the garden and are summed up in just one word, deception. And within our own experience, these come from the leaven, the wisdom brought forth from below that brings a challenge against and a perversion of the word of truth. That which we have believed from the word of truth brought forth from above, that is transforming our minds and forming Christ's image in us, has to be destroyed if we are to be prevented from taking that heavenly land. Galatians 4.19, My little children, for whom I labour in birth again, until Christ is formed in you. And Wuss translates that verse this way, my born ones, concerning whom I am striving with intense effort and anguish until Christ be outwardly expressed in you. And 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. This has been our enemy's focus, and he has been working almost 6,000 years to this end, and everything is in place. And this is something that it would be good for us to understand. What he has lined up against us to deceive us, to prevent us receiving that kingdom, is already in place. He's not coming round to slash your car tires. He's not going to send you to the hospital with a broken leg. He will bring deception. He will bring perversion of the word. He will bring the things of the world. These are the wiles of the devil and the fiery darts of the wicked one that we have to resist. Get our minds off of somehow Satan is walking around in the streets around us looking for us to grab hold of us as an individual. He's not. He's somewhere else in the heavenlies with his focus where it has always been, in the Middle East. But over the course of 6,000 years, he has laid everything in place that needs to be there to trip us up if we will allow it. And by our faith, we will allow no such thing. And if we are to stand 
against his wiles. And if we are to deflect his fiery darts, then it is our faith to the saving of the soul that will do so. Continuing in Ephesians verse 13. Therefore take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And we might remember that having our waist girded with truth is to enter into the pursuit of the kingdom and the spiritual warfare that must come with it in a correct manner. To enter into this with honesty and with integrity. It's being sincere in what we do, being sober-minded concerning our pursuit of the kingdom. Not just going through the spiritual motions, making the right spiritual noises. And all of this is only possible by faith. And faith is seen again in the breastplate of righteousness. The righteousness from God that's accounted to us through our faith. And faith is seen again through our feet being shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Faith with respect to the salvation that we presently possess and faith to the saving of the soul. On the one hand, these two are the solid ground upon which we stand, the anchor for our soul that will keep us from being moved away. Colossians 1.23 If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. And then on the other hand, our feet are made for walking, sharing the good news of our faith to the saving of the soul with those who will have ears to hear that God may give the increase. 1 Peter 3.15 again. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defence to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Well, this multiplication of like-minded individuals is an inescapable part of God's work of subduing the heavenly land in preparation for rulership as we live by faith. And look at this from Acts chapter 2, beginning verse 46. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I planted, Apollos watered, but God 
gave the increase. So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Who is it who gives the increase? God gives the increase. But somebody has to speak the word for somebody to hear, for God to bring them to that place of receiving the kingdom. And we see as we continue in this spiritual armor that we've been looking at, that faith is there once again with the shield of faith. And it's this shield of faith with which we're able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. 1 Peter 5.8 Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. And here in that verse is the shield of faith in action. We resist the devil, not by throwing around oil, not by shouting, not by jumping up and down, not by being excited. We resist him in the faith. Praise the Lord. And to that we can add this from 1 John 5, 4. For whatever is brought forth out of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We are brought forth from above, out of God, by receiving and believing, having faith in the word of truth. And that which we believe from the word of truth, within the context of Christ and his kingdom, is our hope. And our hope is brought forth by our faith. And the goal of our faith is the salvation of our soul. And again, the helmet of salvation cannot exist apart from our faith. As it is through our faith that we wait patiently for the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Through our faith that we will be of one mind concerning the salvation of the soul. And as we know from Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and our faith are inextricably linked. And in conjunction with that sword of the Spirit, we see this as we continue on in Ephesians 6. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly and make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And right there, if you need to know what to pray while we're away, that's it right there. That's what it is. Praise the Lord. As the sword of the Spirit then is the word of God to pray and supplicate in the Spirit in this context 
will lead us to pray in line with the scriptures, even to pray the scriptures themselves with respect to our involvement in the spiritual warfare for all the saints, each other, all of those in pursuit of the kingdom. And we are to be watchful to this end, not becoming careless or casual or neglectful. So as we consider the spiritual warfare and our enemy's desire to deceive, let's go back to the foundation again. Where else would we go? And to the woman in the garden and the nature and the purpose of the serpent's deception. Genesis 3.1 Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, we'll notice, of course, that it was the woman that the serpent spoke to. And he spoke about what God had said. It was to the woman that the statement that she would be like God was made if she ate from the tree. Now, this may seem like an obvious detail, but let's look at it within its proper context as we compare Scripture with Scripture. 1 Corinthians 11.3 But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Can we see the serpent's intent from this? It was for the woman to assume the role of head. Even that headship which belonged only to God. And the purpose was for her to step outside of her created high calling to assume a role that within God's economy could not possibly be hers. And here is the nature of her sin. Usurping Adam's headship. Stepping out of her role into one that God had not given her through handling God's word out of her own resources rather than under Adam's headship. And that which the woman did has profound implications for the church, which we really need to take a look at. Well, 2 Timothy chapters 2 and 3 is where we're going to look. And these chapters have to do with a proper scriptural organisation of the church when it meets together as a corporate body. He goes through the things we're about to look at and in chapter 3 we get into things doing with elders and deacons. It's about proper organisation. It's about God's order. It's about the way things must be done in a scriptural fashion according to our faith. And we'll begin in 1 Timothy 3.14. These things I write to you, 
though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And this comes at the end of all the verses we're about to read. And you can see clearly why Paul wrote these, that you may know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and ground of the truth. Those things then, which must be in place if the corporate assembly is to operate as it should within God's established order, and all, of course, with a view to the salvation of the soul. Well, let's back up to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And of course we're dealing with the salvation of the soul here exclusively. Well, there are two statements in these verses that we really need to take note of. First one is this, that supplications, prayers, intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men. And then the second, he who, did, sorry, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And we need to take note of these statements so that we might properly understand them in the light of later verses which we'll look at in a minute. So the question we want to ask then as we look at these verses is about this word men. Who's being referred to? Only the male of the species? Or is this a generic term for mankind? Well, the answer is found in the word used and in the context in which it's used. And the word here is that Greek word anthropos, from which you'll no doubt realise we get our word anthropology which is used in a generic sense, meaning all of mankind. And contextually, it would be utterly ridiculous, wouldn't it, to say that God only desired that men should be saved. What nonsense that would be. Now, this is an important thing to understand because of what follows. 1 Timothy 2.8 I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting that the men pray everywhere. So what about men here? Who's this referring to? Well, this word translated men is the Greek word anna. And this word is used as a means of distinguishing between a man and a woman. When this word is used as it is here, he means men. He doesn't mean women, he means men. And God desires that all mankind, men and women, anthropos, be saved. But in the corporate assembly, when the church comes together, as we are today, if prayers are to be made before the congregation, then only men, Anna, are to pray. And to make sense of this, we just track this back through 1 Corinthians 11.3 on our way back 
to the garden. What it doesn't say is that women mustn't pray. It says in the corporate assembly, as we are today, if it was to be somebody pray for such and such, it must be a man who does that. It's what the scripture teaches us. And within the corporate assembly, the woman, or the women, uh, this word gune, have their own instructions, which begins with this in 1 Timothy 2.9. In like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women, professing godliness with good works. So in like manner to the men being commanded to pray in the assembly, so the women are to adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation. And the command continues in verse 11. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Now, whatever you do, please keep these verses within their proper context. Within the corporate assembly of the church, as we are today, when the word of truth is handled, either through prayer or teaching or both, then women are to keep silent. Not that they can't speak. It doesn't say that. But they cannot teach or pray when men and women are gathered together for a church service. And the reasons given in the next two verses, which again will take us back to the garden. 1 Timothy 2.13 For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And verse 13 states a very simple scriptural truth. Adam was formed first. And Adam was given the role of head because he was formed first. This is God's design, the assignment of God's high calling, his established order. And Adam's headship must be understood in terms of that which the serpent challenged. Has God indeed said? With respect to handling that which God has said, Adam was the head. In the corporate assembly, as we are today, when it comes to handling that which God has said, the teaching of the word of truth, the men, married or not, makes no difference, occupy the role of head because Adam was formed first. And we should be clear here that the role of head does not suggest superiority. Such, again, will be absolute nonsense because it's very clear for us to see that God is the head of Christ. So how could the Son, who is himself God, be in any way inferior to the Father? He couldn't be, and he isn't. The woman taken out of man to be his helper is God's design. And it's a high calling, equal to the role of the man. 
And this is exactly what we find with respect to a man and a woman in the marriage relationship in 1 Peter chapter 3. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honour to the wife as to the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life for the age, that your prayers may not be hindered. And the Holy Spirit, of course, who is God, was given as the helper, and no complexion of inferiority can be found in this role at all. Not here, of course. But if a woman should teach in the corporate assembly where both men and women are present, or to take the office of pastor teacher or bishop or deacon, is to do exactly that which Eve did, the consequences of which are still with us even today. Just talk to Elizabeth and talk to Alexis in a few weeks' time and she'll tell you the consequences that are still here even today. I will multiply your pain in childbirth. Why? Because she usurped Adam's authority. That's why. And it's a reminder constantly of that being the case. So to continue then in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Nevertheless, she referring to all women, not just Eve, will be saved in childbearing if they, all women, continue in faith, love and holiness with self-control. So what we've been looking at throughout then has been the unique and exclusive roles that God has given to men and women established through Adam and the woman. And we must keep this in mind as we look at this verse Because this verse can have nothing to do with literally bearing children for very obvious reasons. Because there are women who can't have children. There are those who never marry. Would that exclude them from ever being saved to receiving the salvation of their soul? Of course not. But if there is one thing that reveals the profound uniqueness of a woman, it would be childbearing. Something a man can never do. And so childbearing is used metaphorically in this context to define the uniqueness of the role given to a woman. And if a woman will remain in her unique role and continue in faith, love and holiness with self-control, then she will be saved. And likewise, If a man will remain in his unique role and continue in faith, love and holiness with self-control, he will be saved also. Now, all of this that we have been looking at has been within the context of the proper functioning of the corporate assembly when it meets together as we are today. But one final thing to say about the unique roles of a man and a woman within a marriage relationship. A husband may not relinquish his role as head to his wife, and nor is he to exchange roles with her by mutual agreement, and nor can a wife assume the role that is not hers. And this is the really serious bit. Please pay attention to this. To step away from the God-given role 
which the husband and the wife have is to step down from God's high calling. It is to go outside of the realm in which the salvation of the soul can be realized. It's in a church setting and it's in a marriage. It's exactly the same. Step outside of God's order and you step outside of the realm in which the soul can be saved. To deliberately step away from the role given by God is to forsake the saving of the soul, irrespective of whatever else may be done. Step outside of this unique role that men and women have in or outside the assembly within that marriage relationship. And you step outside the realm in which the soul can be saved. And you can pray on your knees 40 hours a week. You can attend every Bible study. You can do whatever you want. But if you're outside that foundational order that God has set in place, the salvation of the soul is not possible regardless of anything else you may do. This is why this is serious, why we should take note of this. And my goodness, when I thought back to 18 years ago, we spent years, it seemed, at the beginning, dealing with the roles and responsibility of husbands and wives, men and women. And I often wondered, why did we spend so much time doing, doing that? Well, at the time, of course, it had to do with making sure everybody had a nice marriage, which, of course, is possible. But there's something far more profound about it than just that, as we would realise this. So husbands, if we would think about it, why would we step away from such a gloriously high calling to be something less than God intended? And for wives, why would you step away from your high calling and go in a downward direction in order to take the role that the husband has? And within the corporate assembly, why would any woman step down from the highest calling she could receive to the lowest of lows to stand behind a pulpit and proclaim that which she has no right to proclaim? It would be utter nonsense, of course, to think of such a thing. Well, we think about it. After all, isn't all of this part of having faith to the saving of the soul? And with respect to the spiritual warfare, has our enemy not provided a plethora of challenges, wiles and fiery darts to God's established order? You know, and I thought as we were beginning on this today and as we would be looking at this, isn't it, hasn't it become almost an impossibility to hear the truth of this scripture without it passing through some feminist filter? because of what's in the world and the way the world operates and what the world says and how the world says things should be. Yet this is the simplest thing in the world when it comes to spiritual truth. And yet, there's so much that comes against God's established order. And we don't need to go into the details of all of that. You'll know exactly what that is and what that looks like. But it becomes hard, doesn't it? Over those years and years of having these things presented to us, that to see the truth of Scripture can almost be an affront to some people at this point. It could almost be something that would cause them to walk away. That's a hard saying. Who can understand it? I'll tell you who. We can understand it because we have the spiritual life to do so and the foundation upon which it's built.
So let me ask, would you have victory in the spiritual warfare? Then embrace the truth of this. Be like-minded with what the scripture teaches about headship and our faith we will be our protection by the power of God for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Praise the Lord. Well, as we come to the end of this series, what shall I do? It could be summed up very briefly. I can't imagine why it's taken us 25 weeks to say this. (laughs) Understand, believe, have faith, accept and live by that which is set in the foundation in those first 34 verses of Genesis. Not just the rulership, but the established order. Not just the established order, but the way the church is to be organised. Not just the way the church is to be organised, but the relationship between a husband and wife. Put all those things together within the context of the seventh day and realise that we are really close because the night is far spent and the day is at hand. And if we put all of these things in place and have that foundation so firm in us that we understand it, then we will view everything that follows on from it through that foundational knowledge and we will be in the right place, headed in the right direction, looking for the salvation of our soul. And let's be encouraged to do that very thing. Let's be encouraged, even over these weeks that stretch out ahead of us that are coming, with those who are going to stand here when I'm not here, hear the word of truth that will be spoken. Don't worry about the speaker. It is the word of truth that matters. Receive it and embrace it. Remain steadfast. Remain immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And if for any reason, husbands, you've let it slip a bit with regards to being the head, what do we do? Confess, change our mind, and get back on track. And you could apologise for your wife for having done it. And wives, if we've ever dreamed of operating that headship, Now is the time to stop, to change our mind and get back to where we need to be. And all of us, we can embrace the extraordinary high calling that God has given to us individually, irrespective of being a man or a woman. And we can praise God for it. And in that day, when we stand before him at that judgment seat, don't you think we'll be glad that we did? And we praise this morning. Please let's stand together and let's pray over this word today. Father, we just thank you and bless you for your word for us this morning, Lord, how we praise you and glorify your name for the great goodness that you have for us. Lord, we thank you for the order that you've established in your church, how you help us to know and to understand these things. How we thank you for the unique roles that we have as men and as women How we thank you for the unique role a husband and a wife has. How we thank you for the incredible high calling that you've given to both. And Lord, I pray 
that we will have the desire even today to make sure we stand firm and steadfast in the role that you have given to us. That faith to the saving of the soul, that in that day we can give thanks to you for having brought it to our attention, for having shown us through your word, for having taught us by your great goodness. And Lord, I pray for all of those who are going to speak while we are away in East Africa in the next week. Lord, I thank you for the word that you've already given them. I thank you for the grace that you have provided, that they will be able to stand here and boldly proclaim that word of God as they should, that they would boldly speak as they ought to speak, without fear and without favour, with compassion and love for your people. We thank you for your great provision for us in all things. And we pray for all those dear brothers and sisters that we will see when we go to the various countries that we're going to. And Lord, we pray that there will be fruit to be had among them as we may impart spiritual gifts to them through the teaching of your word, that they may be prepared and ready to receive the salvation of their soul in that day. We thank you for it. We praise you for it. And in all things, we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.